Tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Would you please tell him that instead of presents this year, I just want my family back. Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It must be magic. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. Nobody's walking out on this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. This way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Support for this podcast is brought to you by KringleMingle.com. Are you single and ready to Kringle? Are you looking for Santa right? Well, we got an offer for you. Sign up at KringleMingle.com and use promo code TISTHEPOD and save 50% on your perfect match. Get ho, ho, happy this holiday season. Welcome to Tis the Podcast, the podcast that's determined to keep the Christmas spirit alive 365 days per year. I'm Anthony. I'm Julia. And I'm Tom. And before we dive right into our movie of the week, we're going to start on a somewhat more somber note and just uh, address the natural disaster that's happening in Texas right now. Um, you know, we just want to let everyone there who's being affected by Hurricane Harvey know that you're in our thoughts and prayers and, you know, it's hard to imagine what you guys are going through since it's the biggest storm that's happened since Katrina, I think. But um, It is actually projected to be the worst natural disaster in U.S. history. But, you know, if there's one, not bright side, but, like, bright spot to these types of things, it's uh, America has a tendency to come together and pull together and unite during times like these, and um, I don't expect it to be any different this time. So... I'm hoping that uh, Congress and the president pass a relief bill soon and, you know, you're all taken care of really quickly. And uh, in the show notes, we're going to put links where people can donate if you want to help the people being affected by the hurricane and donate what you can. Even a dollar helps. You two actually know people in Texas, right? So do you guys want to say anything? I grew up in Houston and went to high school. And I mean, all my primary school was there. So I have a lot of friends that still live there. And I've been in touch with a lot of them via Facebook. Thank goodness for social media, right? When something like this happens and they've all at the most lost things right? Their bodies are fine. Their families are fine. And so I'm so thankful for that. And I'm always impressed by Houstonians. And this was just proof beyond proof that we got some good people down there in South Texas and you just, you can't beat them. About you, Tom? Yeah. Julie and I found out doing this podcast, we grew up just a few miles apart from each other before coming to Tulsa and meeting. My whole family on my mom's side is all in Houston and all in the path of Harvey, but thank God everybody has been kept safe. And we're continuing to pray for and do what we can to help those who have not been so fortunate. So as Anthony said, there's an opportunity to give. It's a way that those of us who are away from the devastation can do our part to help. Yep, most definitely. And also it's a reminder as well. Be grateful for every day you wake up healthy and safe in a warm bed with a roof over your head because you never know how long any of that's going to last. Be thankful, be grateful, be generous. Embody the Christmas spirit year round. 
Moving on to a little piece of housekeeping. I just wanted to apologize for the bad audio on my end during last week's episode. We didn't realize until after we finished recording how bad the quality was. And it was totally my fault. But I hope you still enjoyed it and it won't happen again in the future. Now that that's out of the way, move on to a happier topic, Home Alone. Maybe a happier topic. I don't know what you guys think of the movie, but Julia, how about a plot synopsis? All right. When bratty eight-year-old Kevin McAllister misbehaves the night before a family trip to Paris, his mother makes him sleep in the attic. After the McAllisters mistakenly leave for the airport without Kevin, he awakens to an empty house and assumes his wish to have no family has come true. But his excitement sours when he realizes that two con men plan to rob the McAllister residence and that he's all alone and must protect the family home. So Home Alone, what are your histories with this movie? Like, what did you think of it the first time you saw it and everything like that? Well, it came out in 1990, so I was eight. And I actually did see this in the movie theater and thought it was the coolest thing ever as an eight-year-old, right? Um, Defending the home. And I I will never forget, like, the one thing that sticks out when I think of Home Alone is that hand-drawn map he makes of his house and all the booby traps he's going to fill it with. And for some reason, I go back to that. So I loved this movie, and I still love this movie for different reasons now. But it appeals very, very much to an eight-year-old, I think. I did not see this in the movie theater. Macaulay Culkin's about a year older than I am. So when I did see it on VHS with my grandparents, it was really exciting to see a kid around my own age standing up and defending himself and seeing him go through all of the responsibilities that come along with with being, quote unquote, the man of the house. I was a little envious. I thought it was cool. It was great to see some of the toys I had being weaponized against these awful villains. I loved it. And I still do, uh, like Julia said, for different reasons. And we'll get into those as well. How about you, Uh, Anthony? Right. So I have a confession to make to the listeners. I think I told Tom and Julia this already, but I only saw Home Alone and its sequel for the first time like two, maybe three Christmases ago. And I'm not really sure how I avoided it all these years. It came out in 1990, so I was one, or maybe not even one, depending what time of the year came out. Julia and Tom are both giving me dirty looks right now. He's such a baby, guys. He's such a baby. (laughs) But yeah, my age, you know, wasn't an excuse because I've seen a lot of older movies before Home Alone and older Christmas movies. For some reason, this one always escaped me. I'm not really sure why. I think maybe when I was a kid, I was into the more fantastical Christmas movies, like with Santa and Reindeer, and this didn't really have any of it. But um, yeah, I caught it on ABC Family, now Freeform, two or three years ago, and I watched it back to back with its sequel, and I loved it. And I was so upset that I um, missed out on it all these years. And I watched it multiple times that Christmas season. And uh, now it's become staple holiday viewing for me. I just love the whole family message of the movie. And we'll get into it later. But I just like how Christmassy it feels. Like the look of it and the sound of it. And it's really the perfect movie to watch around the holiday season. Yeah, I think that was lost on eight and nine-year-olds. We were just excited to see somebody get hit in the head with a paint bucket. (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) well it's funny because you know i just said i think it escaped me because it it didn't have like the fantastical elements like santa and the north pole and everything and it was grounded in reality for the most part but it's still a pretty fantastical movie when you stop and think about it 
you know, that's where I want to start. Like, do you two think it's realistic at all, considering it's supposed to be, I don't know if it's supposed to be realistic, but it's supposed to be in our, you know, it's not a fantasy. So, and like, I don't, I don't have kids. So like, do you think it's realistic to get halfway to Europe before realizing your kid is missing and not with you? You know, I only have one kid. She's 18 months and never out of our sight. So no, that part's not. But um, I'm also a little bit, I, I find it funny. I enjoy watching it. But as with so many things in life, age brings cynicism. And uh, every time I think of this movie, I'm reminded of the Family Guy episode, Christmas Guy, uh, season 12, episode something, maybe eight. Um, I should have looked that up. Sorry. The, they have this little just breakaway scene of Home Alone with competent robbers <laughs> and in it. Um, <laughs> have you guys seen that? I, I think I have because it sounds vaguely familiar and I'm a Family Guy fan, but refresh my memory. And it, Kevin tries some silly antic and one of the robbers just pulls out a gun and shoots him. Um, <laughs> um, so that's where I always end up. I'm like, can these robbers really be this dumb? But they, they play it off uh, so convincingly. Yeah, it's, it's completely separate from reality for me, especially let's just start at the beginning. When if my son ever called me dummy and talked to me the way Kevin talks to his mom at the beginning, pretty sure the attic would be the absolute last thing he would have to worry about. And uh, I've got to I, defend, I'm watching it. Uh, I've got to defend Kevin here. She was being a dummy. I mean, seriously, Buzz was tormenting this kid in front of everybody. And his uncle just, uh, his, his uncle mean Frank. uncle, yeah, just called him a jerk oh, in front of the uncle. whole family. Um, I, yeah. I'd kind of be pretty mad if I were the one getting getting punished. I can't imagine just sitting back and letting you know a family member call my kid a dummy and one of the siblings tormenting the other, eating the other one's pizza and then mocking them over it. And when the you know when the kid gets mad, blaming it on that kid, I don't know. But but we're supposed to feel bad for him, right? He, we're supposed to be endeared to right. this, this this down and out. He's downtrodden from the get go, right? Because he really does get left sassy as the movie goes on. So you know, it's just to magnify how he changes, but. Oh, I listen to it now and my skin crawls because I think about if any kid ever talked to me that way. Oh my gosh. All of them though. Like you said, buzz. I mean, ah, it's a sea of misbehaved children. (laughs) Well, it's funny because my brother-in-law was once left at a Canadian tire and my parents, parents parents-in-law got all the way home before realizing they left him. And so, so they turned around to go back and get him. And he was just in the toy aisle and didn't realize they had gone. So it was probably about 30 to 40 minutes, but he was there. I think he was uh, around eight or nine. So it can happen. I don't know if they could get all the way to Europe without realizing it, but yeah. Yeah. I don't think this movie could happen nowadays either. Just with modern technology, like cell phones, he would just text Mm -hmm. her and be like, mom, I'm home. And they would never get on the flight just running through like that with all the updated security. And right. <laughs> so that's a cynic in me. Like, this movie is completely outdated now. But I think it's a nice little snapshot in time of, like, a simpler time. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that about it. Absolutely. hmm Yep. And I think, like, it speaks to Chris Columbus's talent to take Find a new na- world. Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. To find a new world. <laughs> <laughs> bad pun sorry or bad bad reference sorry <laughs> no but 
I think it speaks to the fact that he was able to take such an outlandish concept and kind of like make you buy into it for an hour and a half. And I think that speaks to his talent as a filmmaker. And he's just a legend in general when you look at his filmography. Like, he wrote The Goonies and Gremlin and Young Sherlock, and he directed Mrs. Doubtfire and Adventures in Babysitting and the first few Harry Potter films. And mm-hmm. He's awesome. And produced Prisoner of Azkaban, right? Yeah, I think yes. he was technically a producer for all eight. Okay. I just but, know he was involved in my favorites, so. What? Oh. Yes, me too, Prisoner. Well, we're eventually doing the Harry Potter Christmas movie. It's Christmas scene, so we will discuss it then. God, yeah, those are amazing. Those are some of the most amazing. Okay. But anyway, to bring it back, okay, we, we, there are two scenes in particular that really show just like how well he knows how to... Well, one is how well he knows how to craft a scene, and then one is just how good he is at filmmaking. The first time the wet bandits were going to break into the house unsuccessfully as it turns out because kevin scares them off the first time they're plotting to break in and then it's like a smash cut to kevin watching how the grinch stole christmas and that song is playing on the scene on the tv where the grinch is stealing all the ornaments and i just thought that was clever the real bandits are going to break into the house and essentially steal christmas from kevin and he's watching it on tv so i thought that was good editing on his part Mm -hmm. but then the second thing if you notice at the beginning of the movie He's always shooting Kevin from above to make Kevin look small and tiny and helpless. And then by the time you get to the end, when he's making his stand, they're shooting him from below to make him seem like tall and confident and strong. And I thought that was a really cool filmmaking choice. Now, Christopher Columbus directed the movie, but we have to remember it was written and produced by John Hughes in and of himself is another amazing film legend. Yes, he is. They worked together on Uncle Buck, right? Yep. Yes. And that's what spawned the idea for Home Alone was Macaulay Culkin in that movie. Yes. They wrote the movie around Macaulay Culkin and John Candy. But did you know that John Hughes off? Uh, yeah, John Hughes offered Christopher Columbus National Lampoon before Home Alone. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation for Home I, Alone. Hmm. He well, he turned down directing it because he met Chevy Chase and afterwards said there was no way the two of them would have gotten along. So he passed on directing National Lampoon and took Home Alone instead. And he took Home Alone because he felt a more personal connection to the material because he said when he was a kid, his worst fear was burglars breaking into the house. So here was a movie all about that. And he was like, I can have fun with this. Hmm. So that was so, my trivia for the episode, since I'm that guy. Very nice. Well, let me throw a little bit of trivia in here. So I thought what was interesting, researching some of this director-writer connection between Chris Columbus and John Hughes, between the two of them, split either between writing, producing, directing, you know, pick your poison, right? They have done either together or separately um, Gremlins, Jingle All the Way, Christmas with the Cranks, both Home Alones, National Lampoons, Miracle on 34th Street. I mean, these guys love Christmas movies. We love should, Christmas movies. If either of you are listening to the, well, if Christopher Columbus is listening to this podcast, you're welcome to come on anytime you want. We could always Definitely. get a wavy board. <laughs> I caught myself before I invited him on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, wait, where are you going with this? <laughs> Unfortunately, um, John Hughes did pass uh-huh. away in public as well, just like our Santa we talked about last time, right? Did he die in public? 
He did. He suffered a heart attack while walking on West 55th Street in Manhattan. Was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital and was pronounced dead. I didn't know that. At 59. And we also, just this year, lost another cast member. John Hurd. John Hurd. Yep. Dad. This movie was such a big part of childhood. Just remember, I mean, it's it's one of the five movies that really stands out as movies that I loved as a kid. So yeah, it was really depressing when I heard that, that he reposed. Yeah, it, it's always sad when like your childhood movie icons pass away, especially when they're associated with such like bright Christmas Eve memories. And in the father role, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's actually kind of a good segue to start talking about characters and actors in this movie but before we do i did want to say one more thing i noticed about the plot it's like a modernization of um it's a wonderful life and a christmas carol in some respects because instead Mm -hmm. of saying i wish i was never born or bah humbug he says i wish my family would disappear and then it comes true and he gets to see what life without his family would be like and it's not all this cracked up with me so i appreciated that it's kind of uh a throwback to those classics. It is but, it's really cool. One thing I, I also like about this movie, just as Elf was filmed almost exclusively in New York, Home Alone was filmed almost exclusively in Chicago. Even the scenes in Paris are there in Chicago. And almost all of the scenes in the in their house were filmed in that actual house, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. That house was also supposed to be the house of National Lampoon, but at the time they didn't didn't want to use it for that movie. The owners, because they were selling it or had just moved into it, I forget. But by the time Home Alone came along, they're like, okay. So, I mean, I think so, we would be, we would be remiss if we didn't talk first of all, of course, of about Macaulay Culkin. So he's not the best child actor, is he? I think he overacts the entire time, but. I think that adds to the endearing quality of him. Exactly. And that it adds to the innocence. It's kind of like what we were talking about with Buddy the Elf. You know, the innocence makes you love this character. And I think it kind of detracts from the horrific acts of violence he inflicts on fellow human beings later in the movie. And kind of <laughs> makes you forget how horrible and psychotic he's being. <laughs> no, the movie rides or dies on his shoulder and uh, he carries it really well despite the fact you know you could argue it's not the best acting but that's my opinion what do you guys think i don't know i think i think macaulay culkin nailed an eight-year-old is he supposed to be eight uh yeah eight yeah couldn't remember where i got the eight from i think he kind of nails the eight-year-old kid with lots of siblings who's been repressed for a very long time right he's mouthy because he has to be because otherwise how you know how's he going to be heard in a family like that and i don't know i I never felt like he was overacting beyond the fact that the movie in and in and of what it was right you kind of got to expect a little overacting it's true but it's it's not okay it's not just that he was not hurt in his family he was the entire family was i mean they were just mean to this kid when he had to pack his suitcase he asked everybody to help him not only did they refuse to help him they mocked him he said you know this i've never packed a suitcase before in my entire life and everybody's telling him how he's incompetent he can't do anything his uncle calls him a jerk um when we talk ancillary characters i have a few things uh, to say about him yeah (laughs) that's the guy who's really the sociopath in this movie (laughs) (laughs) he was taking out all his fantasies of what he would do to his uncle on those two poor criminals who broke into his house (laughs) doesn't it make that doesn't that completely change the movie (laughs) 
into a redemption story. <laughs> a revenge story. I would watch that movie. Oh, I would. Of course, too. I watched this movie too. Well, I'm sorry, Tom. What were you saying? He's not repressed. His uncle. Oh no, I was just saying he wasn't. It's not that because you said you know his he, his voice isn't heard. Um, I think it goes further than just not being heard. The kid is marginalized and insulted and belittled through this entire time. They say, oh, you can't do anything for yourself. So the, in and, of, in and of itself, the fact that he gets left and gets to protect the house and keep everything in order, you know, kind of gives him some props. We see Buzz at the end, you know, he's the first time he's nice to Kevin in the entire movie. He's like congratulating him for not burning down the house, which I guess they had kind of expected. I, I thought he did a pretty good job with it. You know, he's an eight-year-old. Well, I mean, I'm not like, I don't want to sound like I was like, you know, you hate kids. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just going to stress again that the overacting added to it for me. Right, so I right. Think it, I think it worked. I don't it think worked. it would have. Good. I don't think it would have worked well if they had had like a young Abigail Breslin who is taking the role really seriously. Right. Um, he was a good fit for the the movie, and each of the subsequent actors in the next well he was the second one but so in the next three three movies they all overacted as well and it worked i mean this movie was number one for how long subtle it's not a subtle movie no no but this movie was huge it set box office records so i mean they did something right it like dominated it for months they called it the home alone effect and that's why they rushed a sequel into production and we'll talk about when we get to the sequel but watching the sequel it's obvious they rushed it into production see this is the first movie where i think i'm like being a little more cynical (laughs) yeah it was it was number one at the box office for 12 straight weeks for three solid months. It went through Christmas and all the way into February um, and stayed in the box office all the way until April 26th, which was uh, well past even Easter. And it was, it, it spawned that term to be home alone. You guys heard that, right? Mm-hmm. When other good movies come out, but they're shadowed they're, or they're, to use a, a popular term right now, they're eclipsed by another movie. In Hollywood, they say that uh, it's been the movie was Home Alone still to this day. Wow. Well, I think part of that is I don't think it's just a good Christmas movie. I think it's a good winter movie in general because obviously it's played most around Christmas. But I mean, what did you guys think of um, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, the Wet Bandits? Uh, magic. They are magic in this movie. I love Joe Pesci anyway. And, Joe Pesci's amazing. Um, Right. And Daniel Stern, right? Um, nobody can scream <laughs> like Marv can scream. Let's just say that. In this one and in the second one, the guy has got an amazing scream. And both of them, their expressions are just, they're bigger than they're bigger than life. They're almost cartoonish, which I read is by design, right? So both of them did not think this movie would be very successful. So they overacted it mm-hmm. and just kind of messed around and it ended up working, working pretty well. <laughs> so. I, I, mean, I mean, they serve their purpose. Like you said, that's how they were written. Like they were, those characters sole purpose is just to get the crap beat Poobie out of them by of this them. little exactly. eight year old kid. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Pesci I'm... wasn't wasn't the first choice for that role though. No, he Robert, wasn't. Robert De Niro was. Oh, that would have been a different movie. I think it would have been a more intimidating burglar than yeah. Joe Pesci was because I think a lot of the humor comes from him being such a short little guy. But um, well, in his voice, even he's got that voice. very remarkable, distinctive voice. Oh, I well, love. 
But I feel like I, it could have worked with De Niro. I feel like if you get anyone with that kind of New York, New Jersey, Brooklyn, like uh, Italian type accent, like that's who the character was. I mean, not to take away from Pesci, he was amazing. I feel like you could have inserted like De Niro, like any of those ilk of actors in it and he would have served the same purpose. But it would have been different just from how intimidating De Niro is. I would have feared for Kevin's life if he was the one breaking into the house. Well, speaking of intimidating, Joe Pesci went method in this and he intentionally avoided and tried to intimidate Macaulay Culkin so that would come across while they were acting. Um, I heard in kids' movies, a lot of the people do it playing villains will do that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's awesome. It shows that I think in the movie that Kevin is actually kind of intimidated by the guy, at least at first. Right. Yeah. And thinking of De Niro or somebody else playing that role of Harry, I would not have imagined Joe Pesci pulling this off before, you know, as an adult thinking of the movies Joe Pesci had done before, I would have expected a lot more F-bombs throughout this film. Well, which I guess... Another interesting bit of trivia, when Pesci was shooting his scenes, he kept dropping F-bombs and other swear words, and Chris Columbus had to keep stopping in the middle of the scene and saying, this is a family film, you have to tone it down a little bit. But he actually did scar Macaulay Culkin's finger when he bit down on him. So I saw that. He's oh. a scary guy. <laughs> Is this Joe Pesci's only Christmas movie, do you guys know? I would bet it is, but nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> Daniel Stern, it is not. He was in A Christmas Story 2, oh. which I have not seen. We need to add it to the list. I found this, it while I was researching this movie. If this podcast goes on long enough, I'm sure we're going to cover all those horrible sequels to all these Christmas films, <laughs> which hopefully the podcast does go on long enough. You know, they were fun. They had great chemistry together. Daniel Stern just played such a such a good buffoon. subordinate. Yeah, well, he was a good buffoon, but next to Joe Pesci, he was definitely able to let Joe Pesci take that dominant role in their dynamic. I think one of you, I think it was Julia, just mentioned nobody screams like he screams. Try putting a spider on me, or most people are afraid <laughs> of spiders, and you may, he may have a <laughs> challenger. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of that spider, I kind of felt bad for it. It was kind of beat up the whole film, too. The shelf collapsed on it, and then, like, <laughs> Kevin kept using it as a weapon the whole time. But... <laughs> An effective so, weapon. Yeah, so props to the film for making me care about an, an animal I generally can't <laughs> care about. So can we talk about Catherine O'Hara? Because she's amazing. She is absolutely her she carries the role of the mother so well throughout the whole film you really can tell you really can feel her desperation to get home to her son and the kind of oh oh crap i messed up and like i'm a terrible mother feeling she has about her Mm -hmm. especially during that airport scene where she's like i will sell my soul to the devil himself And she was great. And I feel like the movie might not have worked so well if Christopher Columbus, Chris Columbus, whatever, didn't cast that role just right. But Catherine O'Hara knocks it out of the park. And the scenes between her and Kevin are some of the best in the film. Oh, yeah. She's just this exasperated mother at the beginning. But at the end, when they come together, oh. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It is so sweet at the end. The guilt on her face when she comes home and she's just the first words out of her mouth are, I'm sorry. Like, it's really good. Mm -hmm. And she's no stranger to Christmas films either. 
because she did the voice of Sally in Nightmare Before Christmas. And she was in Surviving Christmas, that terrible oh, Ben Affleck, Affleck movie. Yeah. And James Gandolfini. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awful. Also, if you're fans of her, I don't know. She's on this new, not a new show. It's on season three or four now, but it's a Canadian show called Shit's Creek. And it's uh, S-C-H-I-T-T-S. And she's married to Eugene Levy on the show. And they were basically billionaires with teenage kids who basically get all their money taken away from them. And they're forced to move to this backwoods town and uh, into a motel in the deep south because it's the only asset they have because they bought it as a joke when they were rich because of the name to insult somebody with. So they're like, <laughs> they're these horrible rich people now, like reduced to nothing. And her and Eugene Levy are hilarious in it. So I highly recommend that show. <laughs> She's the queen of oddball characters, isn't she? What I really like is um, her scenes with John Candy in this movie are all (laughs) primarily improvised on John Candy's side, right? Like leaving the kid in the morgue was totally off the cuff. And apparently they were great friends. And um, she was terribly saddened. Yep. When he died, she was wrecked by it, and she wrote apparently a, a really touching eulogy at his read read a eulogy at his funeral, and their chemistry is great. It really is, <laughs> and her yeah. ability to keep a straight face. I have props for that. Let me tell you. That's what I was gonna <laughs> gonna say too. When they're in the the back of the U-Haul van <laughs> driving from <laughs> driving back to Chicago with the Polka King of the Midwest. <laughs> which I love as a as a self given title, and they're they're playing music, and you just see she's not happy about it, and he leans over and offers her to play the clarinet. Do you guys remember that? Yes, yeah. yes. She, I don't know how she kept it together, but she just gave him this this great like a uh, very annoyed, but I have to be nice to you look. Um, it's, it's well, epic. they they had a lot of practice because they did improv together back when they got their start acting. Hmm. But yeah, it shows. Uh, yeah, I love her in Beetlejuice too. Like as the mo- exasperated mother. In mother, that movie yep. Too. But uh, she's great. She's just I, I don't have a negative thing to say about her. And that's coming from cynical adults. Yeah. Exactly. What about her partner in this movie, John Hurd, as Peter McAllister? I'm not as impressed. Well, I, but I, I don't think, think it's didn't him. have much to do. I was going to say, I don't think it's so much him. I think the script was really weak when it came to a, a father in this role. He did. He just didn't have the same urgency and, and panic and fear that she had, which he definitely would have. It seemed to me in this movie, he was there to pay the bill for everything they did. And right. that's pretty much where the depth of his character ended. Yep. Well, he, um, the actor actually thought this movie would bomb. And he told Chris Columbus that every chance he got on set while shooting to the point when it was just such a success. The first day of shooting Home Alone 2, while the cameras were rolling, he uh, broke the scene and apologized directly to him for doubting. (laughs) And and Chris Columbus still has a tape, he said. uh, Oh, yeah, I would have kept it too. But he didn't didn't include that in the uh, outtakes for the DVD? I don't know. Probably not. Oh, that would be great to see. <laughs> but I, d- I don't really have much to say about him other than John Hurd is usually a great actor and it's mm-hmm. sad he's gone. And uh, yeah. But in this movie, it's just he didn't have 
anything to do. He didn't. He didn't have anything to work with, and it, he was marginalized. And you would have, I would have expected more from John Hurd. So the only other main character we should discuss before moving to ancillary ones is Old Man Marley. So, My favorite. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that church scene is just. I love that church scene. Me too. When his humanity comes out, right, and he really connects with Kevin. That's a great scene. And he looks very Santa-like. Did you notice, right, with the whiteness and the short beard type and just the sweet man who loves his granddaughter. And I love that. His story's great. It's so short in the movie, and it's just a tiny little blip, but that blip is so sweet. It's a significant blip, though, because he saves Kevin in the end. But Kevin Mm -hmm. saves him. But Kevin saved him first. But mm-hmm. his story, like about the fight with his son and they hadn't talked in years, that makes me so sad every time I watch this movie. Because I'm one of these mm-hmm. guys who like, when you're out in public and I see like an older person like sitting alone at a diner or something or at a restaurant, I guess it's a cynical adult in me. I always assume the worst, either like, oh, they're a widow or a widower or oh, they have no family near, they're eating alone. Like I feel so bad. And I don't know. Ever since I saw Home Alone for the first time now, I, you know, double down on those feelings because old man Marley was a alone for years Mm -hmm. the actor passed away 2015 i think but he passed away in a nursing home because so yeah oh that's very sad guys we're gonna have to stop bringing them the sadness and all of these (laughs) (laughs) i feel like we're 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 debbie downer (laughs) maybe the outro maybe the outro music for this episode episode should be blue christmas (laughs) (laughs) well we can't do that there's so much good good christmas music in this movie but before we we get there we are gonna get to it yeah old man marley fit this this typical quintessentially 80s i know this was 1990 but it was it was a big deal in the 80s and 70s movies where you have kids there's always that one evil character that you stay away from that seemed to become so prevalent in that decade monster Um, squad right yes exactly and you know most of the time they're not evil but but he turns out to be such an amazing character. When I was watching this movie with my wife and they, and they go in, I'm like, this is such a beautiful choir concert. Where the heck are all the people? Why are they doing this for no one? And then I realized it was John Williams. I, I actually paid attention that the concert was that they were practicing and he was just there to see his granddaughter, but just to see that level of devotion still to his family, even though when he's, he's estranged from the rest of them was, was Wait, very he was touching. there to see his granddaughter. See, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. He said, that's my granddaughter, the one with the red hair. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he Who came cares? in. I learned something new. He came into the church to see his granddaughter, which I hadn't paid attention to before either. And that's where they have their great touching scene that is a real turning point for Kevin and old man Marley. It gives it, it gives it all the Christmas feels. Right. So ancillary characters before we get into like favorite scenes and stuff. Do you, either of you have anything to say about the ancillary ones? I hate uncle Frank. Yeah. And Buzz. I hate Buzz. Buzz, Buzz redeems at the end, though. He does at least I redeem. don't even like him at the end. I, I don't like Buzz, and he reminded me of Biff from Back to the Future. Yes. <laughs> he's totally I Biff. Of. I can totally yeah. see that. Yep. He That's is all Biff. I think yep. whenever I see this movie. It's Biff. Yeah. And fun fact, also embarrassing fact, uh, Back to the Future is another trilogy I didn't really watch until few years ago either for the first time that's shocking that's shocking that's shocking, that's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh 
besides Buzz and Uncle Frank and John Candy, who we kind of discussed, I mean. Oh, I just love John. I love John Candy. I know we've talked about him already, but that polka king of the Midwest. <laughs> you know, when, so, I was, when I was researching this movie, uh, the guy who plays Buzz, Devin uh, Rattray, mm-hmm. I feel bad for the guy. His, his Wikipedia doesn't even have a picture of him on it. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That's sad. Well, I mean, he, he, he could technically upload one. That's how that works. You can right, right, right. But nobody, not even the actor himself, have cared enough to upload a picture of him. Yeah, that's very sad. It is. I still don't like him. (laughs) Now, one thing I never picked up on as a kid that I did um, as an adult with Uncle Frank. You know, as as a kid, it's just like, oh, he's so mean to Kevin. But as an adult, you see this moocher that I didn't notice as a kid. He's like, oh, this is my brother's house. He'll pay for the pizza. And they're like, you have money? He's like, oh, they're all traveler's checks. Through the whole movie, he's got an excuse for something. He's walking around with an entire shri- uh, tray of shrimp while they're in Paris. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he tries and to steal the crystal goblets on the airplane. Yes. Yeah, put, put, put them in your purse. Put them in your purse. Oh, oh, and, and then when the stewardess comes over, she fills his wine. No, fill it up. Fill it up. Fill it up. Mm-hmm. He wants to fill to the mm-hmm. brim. Yeah. Gosh. That's a he's, really good There's point. nothing redeemable about him. Nothing. No. No, well, he, I, he's I one have, of those that he only got worse with with my as I aged. Okay, see, this is where he's irredeemable, but I have a few of his quotes and my favorite quotes that I jotted down. Oh, for Just sure, really? They made me laugh so hard. So, I mean, do you guys want to move to like favorite scenes and favorite quotes and things? I would love to. Yeah. So, since we were just talking about Uncle Frank, I'll read some of my favorite quotes of his. Oh, when they're on the plane and they just realize that Kevin went missing, it's his delivery. Like everyone's trying to comfort the parents or the mother. I forget her name, what Kate. And um, he's just sitting there. He clearly doesn't care. He's just like, horrible, horrible, just horrible. And then later on in Paris, he's like, well, if it hell, if it makes you feel any better, I forgot my reading glasses at home. <laughs> And that just really made me makes me laugh every time I see it because because he's such a jerk and it's such a jerk and it's really funny and I think the most iconic quote from this movie is "Keep the change, you filthy animal." On the uh, the movie, which is not actually a real movie, Chris Columbus just shot scenes for that black and white movie, but every time I hear that quote too it just reminds me of christmas which is weird because it has nothing to do with christmas but i know i really i really i looked for that years ago um when i found out that chris columbus made scenes for a fake movie angels with filthy souls (laughs) (laughs) that title it's just it's great and uh kevin has some pretty funny lines too like when he's going through Buzz's stuff, he finds like three dollars, and he's so excited. He's like, "Buzz's life saving!" <laughs> and then he finds his Playboy, and he's like, "No clothes on anybody, sickening!" And then he just throws it over <laughs> his shoulder in disgust. <laughs> but. He does have some great. I liked it when he and Old Man Marley are in the church, and uh, Marley tells him, "I sent him a check," and he said, "I wish my grandparents did that." They send me clothes. Last year I got a sweater with a big bird knitted on it. Marley's like, that's nice. He said, not for a guy in the second grade. You can get beat up for wearing something like that. Yeah, I had a friend who got nailed because, because there was a rumor he wore dinosaur pajamas. <laughs> Just such a middle, such an elementary or middle school concern. 
one of his cousins or siblings at the beginning of the movie had a really great line just in the background. They're all sitting down eating the pizza and she's like, Mom, does Santa Claus have to go through customs? I just... (laughs) I just like that line and when he realizes his family is gone kevin's immediate reaction is glee he's like i made my family disappear <laughs> so which is the that's the 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 wish he had the night before that he told his right. mom but i loved right before that when he's getting mad he's like this house is so full of people it makes me sick when i grow up and get married i'm living alone do you hear me i'm living alone i'm living alone <laughs> I'm gonna start. I, I'm gonna start anytime my wife and I have a disagreement. That's gonna be my go-to line from now on. <laughs> and when how well that goes? <laughs> when his when his mom is marching him up to the attic before the night before, and she's like, "Say good night, Kevin," and he's sarcastically like, "Good night, Kevin." So funny. Again, such a, like, so such an eighth grade thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what about you, Julia? How about some of your favorite lines? Oh man, my favorite one is when Kevin's on the the bike handles and he's ziplining over to the playhouse, right, to get away from the wet bandits. <laughs> and they finally get up there and they're looking at the zipline and um and Marv goes, "Did he commit suicide?" <laughs> he's like, Idiot. <laughs> no. That's my favorite. Apparently, impro- he that was total improv. That line he threw it in there, and again, I'm so surprised that Joe Pesci didn't start laughing. But I mean, you give me any of Marv's lines, and they're my favorite lines in the movie because I have an I have a an unhealthy attraction to his character in this movie. He cracks me up. I don't know what it is. It's everything, but I laugh. I laugh uh, disproportionately much to what I should laugh to his lines. So. Santa don't visit the funeral homes, little buddy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm totally made. It's I, his I, crazy eyes too. I hadn't I hadn't remembered that line at all. He said it. He said it when I was watching it this week, and I just I cracked up. I'm, I'm making I'm making a Christmas card and putting that on it. <laughs> jo- Joe Pesci has a pretty great line too. When they realize it's only Kevin home alone, we're getting conned by a kid to the gardener. <laughs> so speaking of that zip line that Kevin created. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. that totally inspired me to make a zip line to my treehouse. Did it work out? Oh, it would be such a cool story if that were true. <laughs> I would feel so much cooler if I really did that. <laughs> so that treehouse, that treehouse, okay, random fact, that treehouse was not there. They built it for the movie and sadly tore it down when they left. Oh. If I was the owner of the house, I would have been like, can I pay to keep that? Me too. Yeah. But, um, Besides favorite quotes, what are some of your favorite scenes? I like the ones where the bandits get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> the ones they would never survive in real life. Well, first of all, I'm impressed. These people are totally well off. They, did you guys notice their door handle has their initial on it? Mm-hmm. Wow. I yeah, mean, that's some money. That is some money right there. Mine does not have my initial on it. But now I want to have it in case anybody <laughs> tries to break in. I can, you know brand them as my own well i mean even if they didn't have the initial on the doorknob look at that house (laughs) accurate you know it only sold for 1.5 million dollars last time that's yeah that's shocking so i'm gonna read it that's shocking shocking. (laughs) so i'm gonna speaking of that i i really i i loved watching the bandits get beat up but i'm gonna read a little clip if you guys are okay from an article i found 
Go for uh, it. While I was reading up, it said a BB gun shots to the forehead and groin, a steaming hot iron and a can of paint to the face, a flaming blowtorch to the scalp. The wet bandits endure such an awful, the wet bandits endure an awful lot of violence at the hands of a single eight-year-old. So much so that neither of them should should have been walking, let alone conscious, by the end of the night. In 2012, Dr. Ryan St. Clair diagnosed the likely outcomes of their injuries. At, while a read-through of the entire article is well worth your time, here are a few highlights. The iron should have caused a blowout fracture, leading to a serious disfigurement and debilitating double vision, if not repaired properly, and the blowtorch. According to Dr. St. Clair, the skin and bone tissue on Harry's skull will be so damaged and rotted that his skull bone is essentially dying and will likely require a transplant. <laughs> so Christopher Columbus didn't play this one very uh, true to reality. Well, I can't wait to, I hope you can find a quote when we do the second one, because I want to hear what they have to say when Kevin's <laughs> dropping bricks from eight floors up on top of their heads. <laughs> That's my favorite part of that whole movie, hearing the bricks. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> But the other thing I that, that made the scenes that I loved so endearing to me were the toys he used, because those were like the toys I had. Especially, I loved the micro machines, and those came up more than once. Um, he gets in trouble at the beginning for having his micro machines out, and then later they recall and the, the bandits follow them. Okay, so one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Marv and Harry are driving by the house at night, because they have a suspicion nobody's home, even though you know, the kid said somebody was home and Kevin has all these mannequins and the Michael Jordan cut out and he's like moving them with strings and blasting mm-hmm. the Christmas music. I just love that scene. I find it so funny. Mm-hmm. And Marvin Harry just so confused. They're supposed to be away. They were going to Paris. <laughs> they look so confused then too. Yeah. I love are. I love Harry's face. He's like, what? <laughs> But like he half figures out, he's like, that's a flipping mannequin, but he never speaks it out loud, but you know, he's like almost thinking it. I love, that's a great scene. That's an awesome one. Who has that many mannequins sitting at home though? I know, right? It was a little creepy. I mean, rich people. (laughs) The the cutout of Michael Jordan, we all have that at home, but I mean the rest. (laughs) I did have that at home. A lot of people did back in the day. But no, those mannequins, and, and I'm sorry, I, I know it's a great scene, but his dancing would in no yeah. way make those movements on the mannequins, guys. <laughs> Don't way, ruin Tom's the magic for me. <laughs> He's tested that theory. Way to drop the ball, Macaulay. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite scene, and I probably like it so much because I like the change from Kevin the kid to Kevin the still a kid, right? But more worldly, grown up and responsible and all of that. My favorite scene that results from that growth is when he's bringing those groceries home with the two bags and he gets to that part and the bottom of the bags drop out and he's just like, crap. And it's like that in a moment is what it's like to be an adult a lot of times, isn't it? I'm like that right there. That right there, you nailed it. That's why I have- Overpack the bag so you have less to carry. I always do it. (laughs) I do too. My absolute favorite scene, though, is when his mom gets back home. She does a great job, but if you look at his face, that's where that's where Macaulay Culkin captures his acting. I mean, his uh-huh, 100%. His, his sheer joy and relief and excitement all come out at once. It did a really good job. One hundred percent agreed. That I was gonna say. I was gonna single that scene out, and we also singled out the old man Marley scene in the church. Those two yep. scenes 
in particular are like the heart of this film. Those two scenes mm-hmm. right there. I just am a sucker for the we slept in and then the mad dash to the airport. <laughs> I just find that I love the music in that scene. And that, that sets the tone for a recurring theme throughout the Home Alones. And there's one more scene I wanted to... Oh, the, when he goes to the Santa Village, which is just closing, and talks to that really <laughs> crappy... Well, first, the smoking first, Santa? For, for, well, first he talks to the very attractive elf lady who's like, I have to get home to my boyfriend. And, like, but, and Santa's by the car over there. You may be able to catch him if you're quick enough. And then it's like the fakest looking Santa Claus chain smoking. But, and yet, despite the fact that he's doing that, he's willing to play along with him and pretend to be Santa for a few extra minutes. And then Kevin's like, no, I know how this works. That whole scene, you know, I wish all I want for, tell Santa, I just want my family back. I just love that whole scene. I think it's really sweet. And that's after he, he's upset and he's like, how can you give Chris Kringle a parking ticket on Christmas Eve? What's next? Yep. Rabies shots for the Easter Bunny? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, a, that was an endearing, yeah. Is and that's that... another thing I didn't catch as a kid. This, this grumpy, tired, overworked man who just wants to get home and is having a bad day still takes time to be sweet to a kid. That was nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was. Does this movie look and feel like Christmas to you? Stupid question, but... Uh, it absolutely it, does. It, it, um, it 100% is. It looks, feels, and sounds Christmas. John Williams did a great yeah. job with the music. I mean, just great throughout the whole thing. We, yes. we talked in our first episode. We couldn't decide which version of Carol the Bells is our favorite. I think it's John Williams' uh, arrangement in this film. Mm-hmm. And his arrangement of um, Oh Holy Night is my oh. favorite version of that song, too. It is. It's so beautiful. Good. Mm-hmm. My favorite music from the whole thing is the is the choir practice when Kevin's in the church. That just those kids' voices yep. mm-hmm. sound like no sound like children at no church I've ever been to. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the theme, um, which this probably goes to Chris Columbus having you know he uses John Williams for a lot of his movies. Um, it's very Harry Pottery, very Harry Pottery. Can we just, you know, we called Chris Columbus and um, John Hughes the legends, but John Williams is probably the biggest legend who worked on this movie. Mm-hmm. Arguably, he did the music for Indiana Jones, Star mm-hmm. Wars, the original Superman, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park, any big franchise he's worked mm-hmm. on. And he's just incredible. And he's still scoring mm-hmm. episodes eight and nine, and he's like 90 years old. Yep. He's up there with, uh, uh, he and Danny Elfman are the two I, I really think of when I think of amazing composers with movies. Me too. Mm-hmm. And, and they're I'm, just, so ha- I'm so happy Danny Elfman's doing Justice League. I know. <sighs> Way to go, DC. <laughs> Way to go, Joss Whedon, because he made that decision. And Oh, that was all Joss Whedon? Zack Snyder was bringing back uh, Junkie XL, but then when Zack Snyder left the production because of his daughter uh Whedon Whew. fired Junkie XL and brought on Danny Elfman. Awesome. But the Home Alone main the Home Alone theme song is gonna be my ringtone here in the next few days after watching the movie. Oh that's a good idea. The big question of the episode every episode, does it pass the Linus test? Multiple times. Yes it yes. One hundred percent. And I think I mean we've talked about the scenes in detail, but it's the church scene 
The Santa scene. The Santa scene and the scene with mm-hmm. his mom at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the scene with old man Marley with his family. Yes, 100%. We see the multiple whole, the times. The whole ending, yeah. Yep. So it has everything you could want in that feel-good Linus moment, you know. It's family and it's great. If you disagree, you're wrong. <laughs> you you can email us and tell us why you disagree and we'll read it on air and then we'll tell you you're wrong. So we're really but, trying um, to encourage this this listener listener engagement. Right? Any final thoughts before we move on on the movie in general? Oh, we have to rank it. Where would you we rank, do have it, to rank com- it compared to Elf? I'm voting for number 2. I am too. I'm voting for number two. <laughs> this ranking is going to be a lot less exciting um, until we get a few more movies under our belt. <laughs> I'm glad we're doing this weekly so that that will happen quickly. Yes, <laughs> me too. I would not um, want to be at the end of a year and only have 12 movies ranked. Yeah. So now's the time we would normally read listener mail or iTunes reviews, but we still haven't gotten any yet. But so I, instead of doing that, I'll read the results of the poll we asked on Twitter, just in case people didn't see who got the results in. Ugh. So on Twitter, <laughs> we asked our listeners, in your mind, who was the best movie Santa Claus? And the choices were Ed Asner of Elf, Tim Allen of the Santa Claus, David Huddleston of Santa Claus the Movie, or Richard Attenborough of 1994's Miracle on 34th Street. And Tim Allen won with 40% of the vote. Ed Asner came in second with 30%. And surprisingly, David Huddleston edged out Richard Attenborough with 20%. So what do you guys think of that? Those uh, rankings. Tim Allen is not my Santa. Hashtag not my Santa. (laughs) (laughs) hashtag not my Santa lord (laughs) no Tim Allen did a great job Tim Allen um, Tim Allen was a better Santa in the first one than the sequels I'll say that I liked watching him become Santa more than I liked seeing him as Santa if that makes sense yes Um, well we'll but I think yeah we'll we'll talk more on that but I think I I stand by what I said um, in last episode and that is that uh, Ed Asner is Santa to beat for me. And, me too. And so far, nobody's done it. What do you think about the results, Julia? I like Richard Attenborough as Santa. So he's okay. your favorite? I think he's my favorite. Yeah. I like Ed Asner a lot, but I think when I think of traditional Santa, right, the first face that pops in my mind is Richard's. Well, I, I'll say this. Richard Attenborough probably had the, one of my favorite Santa moments on screen ever, and that's when he's doing the sign language with the little with girl. With the girl. Oh. Mm-hmm. I think that's what did it for me, yeah, honestly. That's... He was so personable, and I love never thought before of Santa speaking different languages. I don't know why. Like, it didn't yeah. occur, aside from the popo, jijo, like that, but that was funny, <laughs> right? But, like, the endearing, you know, personal Santa for everybody. He nailed that for me. I thought of Santa speaking different languages when, I don't know if either of you were Seinfeld fans, but Kramer became a mall Santa very briefly. And he was like, 
sitting with this girl and the mom was like, she doesn't speak English. And he's like, oh, well, Santa speaks the language of anyone. A doichi doichi doochi do. And like, he was just <laughs> doing all this gibberish and the mom hurried the girl away. Like, really <laughs> I will say about Richard Attenborough, he has an amazing Santa beard. He does, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. The uh, short kind of kempt beard. He would he would fit my my fun game. I think would I, my game. I think would be fun to play. Um, Santa or hipster? Where you see different beards and you have to vote <laughs> if it's Santa beard or a hipster beard. Um, his his could go either way, but it it really he looks like Santa. He and does. his suit his suit in that movie was amazing. But we'll save that for another day. I think you need yeah. to trademark that game before any of our listeners do. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. So a get to know you question I have for you guys. Yes, I know. Anthony, you are drinking a holiday drink right now, correct? What are you drinking? Yes, I am drinking a holiday beverage. I'm drinking Celestial Tea's uh, sugar cookie flavor. So if you live by a Walmart or a Target, um, they have all their holiday drinks out already. So I picked up the sugar cookie flavor and the vanilla cranberry flavor. Yum. So while talking holiday drinks, what are your favorite holiday drinks, guys? My favorite is Starbucks hot chocolate. I'm sec- we kick it off the season. and Yep, we love it. I'm going to second that, hands down. Yeah, it's the best hot chocolate out there, especially with a shot of peppermint in it. Oh, okay. Controversial opinion. I don't like peppermint. I can't stand candy canes. Oh. I don't really yeah we're learning so much about you tonight anthony i know i feel like i'm uh i feel like once this call ends i won't have co-hosts next week <laughs> or, I or, am, or rather i'll be kicked off the show i'm just <laughs> i have no words i'm just wagging my head in derision at you uh, <laughs> pepper peppermint and another one can't do gingerbread either. Oh, really? That's also sad. I I build, I, I'll build the houses. I won't eat them. Now I'm Don't I'm gonna be it? I'm gonna be horribly hipster here. Um, after just bashing them, um, my <laughs> favorite my favorite things. I really like anything pumpkin flavored, and I was oh. totally down with the pumpkin PSL. long before it was cool. I mean, sure. like like uh, the first the first year my wife and I were dating, um, I made a big deal about going and getting pumpkin stuff, and and she had not really had much there there wasn't much that was back when psl was new uh, or relatively new and uh i started her down her road of pumpkin corruption Um, now i do have my limits like there are some pumpkin things that come out that i'm just like what are these people thinking but for the most part uh, i'm a big fan of pumpkin i can't do psl can't can't. so the so when i go to okay i have to go on a little starbucks thing here when if I go I, to Starbucks, I get a vanilla latte for the record, usually. When I go to Starbucks, I don't go there for coffee because it's not coffee. Um, no matter what they want to call it, it's not coffee. I go there for a uh, either warm or cold, uber sugary drink. Um, and once I, I, I can admit that because I'm, I'm a coffee snob, um, but I do enjoy the sugary drinks that, you know, I, I have a sip and I immediately have the diabetes, uh, the PSL <laughs> and the uh, peppermint mocha. Oh, I love that peppermint mocha. So it's good stuff. Anthony and I are just not having. Uh, we're just not sharing holiday drinks. Nope. We'll have to get our own. We'll have to order our own. No double straws for us. <laughs> <laughs> At least I agree with the Starbucks hot chocolate. 
Yeah. But Christmas mornings, because Starbucks is closed and I wake up like a child at 6 a.m. to open my gifts, I, uh, I'll make my own hot chocolate. But hot chocolate's my Christmas drink of choice. Nice. Nice. It's a winner. Mine is I love a good apple cider. That's my go-to. Mm. I can agree with that. And speaking of being a child... <laughs> I kind of can't believe I'm admitting this. I used to, when we were in, when we go to Houston for Christmas and my nephew was young, I would sneak in and wake him up and make him go wake everybody up to start <laughs> Christmas because, you know, I can't do that at 25 years old. <laughs> so normally we wake up at 5.30, 6 o'clock, but a.m. obviously. Does your wife and family so do that too? Early. No. So it was torture torture my first christmas up there and they weren't opening gifts until 1 p.m and i was like i was just sitting there staring at the gifts and okay i'm not a materialistic guy i don't want to make it sound like that but when you have a pile of gifts under the tree you want to shake them you want to open them and it was torture yeah see i'm the weirdo when it comes to that i don't like to get gifts from people at all i like to give gifts and i I have i prefer giving too Wow, we sound so cliche, don't we? I'm a giver. No, but um, I like getting all the gifts. Let me just say that for the record. That's, I much prefer getting to giving. That's Christine too. That's um, what she said. I am not. <laughs> Sorry, she's watching you, The Office. I had to you say. get that now, right, Julia? Yes, I do. I, I'm sorry. Christine does not let me near presents at all. I'm not able to touch them because there has not been a single present, no matter how random or off the wall. I have not figured out immediately. I am that guy. I can pick up a present and I know what's in there. Oh, gosh. I want to test that theory. My grandmother is notorious for that. My dad's mom. She's like, uh, people used to joke she's like a witch because no matter how, like, weird or oddly shaped or like even if you get something small and put it just in a regular square box like somehow she could figure it out it's christmas but, um, voodoo but i have a get to know you question for you guys too Ooh. so in your households growing up and even now which day is the big is christmas eve as big a deal in your houses as christmas day is no as a kid we did nothing for Christmas Eve. And then um, after my mom and dad um, got married, his family always did one gift Christmas Eve, so we could do that. Um, but now for us, um, we'll see how it, how it pans out for our daughter. We Christmas starts after... So in the Eastern Christian tradition, uh, the day is reckoned from sundown to sundown. Mm-hmm. So technically for us, Christmas starts after liturgy christmas eve so when we come home that evening it's already christmas so i don't know what we're gonna do yet but we also celebrate saint nicholas day on december 6th and give gifts on that day as well cool yeah Mm -hmm. what about you julia so my grandparents lived in arkansas and when we were there more often than not we were there for christmas when i was a kid and we would do the Christmas tree is what we called it. Let's have the Christmas tree, right? And we would do everything Christmas Eve and there would be nothing Christmas day because Santa would visit our house in Houston while we were gone. So like Santa didn't visit grandma's house. 
So we did the Christmas tree, <laughs> Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve was way bigger when I was a kid. If we were ever in Houston for Christmas, Christmas morning was bigger because then Santa would visit. So, and that's how we are with our kids. We do the one present mm-hmm. um, Christmas Eve for our kids and they always get Christmas jammies. So they know what it is, but it's something they get to wrap, you know, they get to unwrap. And then, um, and then normal Christmas morning stuff. But we tell our kids they're not allowed to wake up at ungodly hours or we will wait and they will have to wait. So like 6.30 and after, I know you can look at me like I'm a terrible person and that's totally fine. But we've told them we're like, we're not doing this four o'clock in the morning Christmas business because I want to enjoy it too. So your face just turned, just turned kind of green. Yeah, a little bit. I'm okay with that. I get a little extra sleep on Christmas mornings than most parents do, probably. (laughs) We started the Christmas jammies last year for for Ellie's first Christmas. How about you, Anthony? So Christmas Eve was always as equally a big deal in my house growing up as Christmas Day. Um, I think it's a very Italian thing because they do the Feast of the Seven Fishes and everything like that, which I... um, I personally don't like fish, so I. Is there really seven fishes involved? There's it's a whole big feast. Like they, I don't know if they do it right by the book or whatever. Because, but yeah, it's a whole big like feast, like fish and pasta and everything, like seven course meal type thing. Um. But yeah, so Christmas Eve is always just as big a deal. So we would split Christmas Eve. My mom would have a party at her at their house for her side of the family then Christmas Day we would go upstate to see dad's side of the family so you know we'd get gifts from all of mom's relatives on the night before Christmas and then the next day all Santa's presents and then presents from dad's relatives and I'm just gonna say it I actually look forward to Christmas Eve more than Christmas Day because I feel like Christmas Day is kind of like the end of a sugar rush when you come down like christmas is a lot of anticipation so like once christmas day hits by the end of the day you're like oh it's over and there's kind of like this depressing aspect to it at the end of the day like right before you go to bed so christmas eve is just like yeah wake up early then in the morning then the afternoon would go to christmas mass at the church yeah. And you, sometimes we'd catch the uh, children doing the nativity pageant, and which is always cute and fun. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so Christmas Eve is a huge deal in my house. It still is, and I love it. I love that too. Next week, I'm asking you guys about your stocking traditions, just so you know. Ooh. Okay. Oh, so, um, so how about you, listener? You want to let us know on the socials on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, yeah, how we your want- family does it, or let us know on the website. How, what's your Christmas celebration look like? We'd love to share some of that next week on next week's podcast. Yeah. And yeah, like we said before, we really want to strike up conversations with you guys. We don't want it to all be one sided. So definitely let us know your favorite holiday drink and, uh, you know, Christmas Eve and Christmas day traditions. And please rate and review us on iTunes. Every review counts. Um, I think once... On iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Yeah, I always forget Google Play and Stitcher, but they're just as important. 
So yeah, please rate and review and uh, spread the word about our podcast to all of your friends and family, whether or not they like Christmas, because I think um, even if they just like movies, they might enjoy us, especially when we get into the non-traditional Christmas movies. Uh, so yeah, help us spread the word. So with that out of the way, it's time to announce next week's movie, which is Sarah Smith's 2011 film, Arthur Christmas. Yay. Our first animated yay. film. <laughs> I think Julia had the real yay and I have the sarcastic one. <laughs> that was a real yay. I'm looking forward to, to, a, uh, to a movie that we disagree on. And also I'm looking forward to talking about an animated film. Yes, mm-hmm. it should be fun. So make sure you do your homework and watch that movie before next week's show. And after you watch it again, write us and let you know. Let us know what you think of Arthur Christmas because after we discuss it next week, we'd love to read some of your thoughts on the film. So until next time, have a great week. Only 112 days till Christmas. Bye, guys. <laughs>